Hey everyone, my name is Ed Gerber and I'm sitting here with uh, some of my friends, Hans Zimmerman, Ivan De Silva, and sorry, Jen Zimmerman, Ivan De Silva, and Hans Borsma. And uh, we have been thinking lately about the concept of fear. And we've been thinking about that because um, with COVID over the last two years and many other things going on in our world, we think that the church needs to think very deeply about the concept of fear and the reality that many of us are living in fear lately and uh, to have a discussion about what discipleship looks like in a world that is full of fear. And so we're going to be engaging in that topic today. I uh, hope this is of some value to all of you and uh, heartily invite you to send in any questions that you might have and we will deal with those as we receive them. So Ivan was going to start us off with a little theological primer on the concept of fear. So, Ivan, I invite you to do that. Yeah, thank you, Ed. Well, it's, it's interesting to me that uh, one of the most off, if not probably the most off-repeated uh, commands in the Bible is do not fear. First occurs in Genesis and, and then finally occurs in the book of Revelation. In Genesis 15, for the first time, uh, Abraham is told, do not fear. <coughs> and the particular situation there is, the, uh, the possible invasion of uh, a group of kings that he had defeated in the previous chapter. Maybe they will uh, reconverge and come back and attack him. And so uh, he was probably nervous about that, and God appeared to him in Genesis 15 and said, do not fear. And the last time it occurs is in the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, I believe, verse 10, when the church of Smyrna, uh, which is actually one of the few churches in the Rev uh, seven churches of Revelation that's been doing fairly well and uh, not succumbing to the uh, temptation to join the rest of the world in, um, in syncretism, is told, do not be afraid. And what, wh and what they're told specifically is, do not be afraid of what is about to befall you, which is um, interesting because obviously there is something that is going to be befalling them. So in between those, these two poles, the command not to fear occurs dozens and dozens and probably hundreds of times. There's no uh, complete uh, account counting of how many, how many times it occurs. And what people are told not to fear varies from everything to God himself, do not fear God himself, to natural disasters, to wars, to foreign uh, kings, armies, uh, pestilence, disease, plagues, every possible sort of circumstance uh, people are told not to fear which tells you something, a command that occurs so many times where we are told not to fear, obviously implies that uh, our world does contain a lot of things that could cause us fear. And so, um, so when, when people are told not to fear, that's, that can become a rather, it can become a cliche. What do you mean, do not fear and don't fear? So we have to dig a little bit deeper and ask, uh, on what basis can we, can we not fear? And uh, when you dig a little bit deeper onto the, onto the reasons why we are told not to fear, the opposite of fear in the Bible is trust. It's, uh, it's faith. And, um, and we trust, and trust or faith uh, is not a blind faith. We, we, we do not have a blind faith. We do not have a faith that says leap into the unknown, leap into the dark. Our faith is based on our assurance of God's word and God's promises to us. It is based in the character of God. 
that he is faithful to his promises and we can take those promises to the bank and we can trust them. And, uh, and if we do trust God, then there is no need to fear. So what exactly should we be trusting about God uh, in this particular case? And I'm now thinking specifically of uh, the coronavirus. One of the things, uh, I've, I've read a lot about this and the science and all of that, but one of the things that I haven't fully seen coming out of this crisis is a, um, a, uh, a, a good discussion on how the coronavirus fits into the, the biblical narrative. Now, of course, you cannot look in the Bible and uh, go to concordance and go to see and, and look up coronavirus and it'll tell you the text that talks about in the Bible. The Bible doesn't work that way. But I think what we do have is we have analogical stories that, um, uh, that could, if, if, we, if we studied them and we, and we knew them, might help us to think our way through the present crisis. So even though the specifics are not there, I think there's enough similarity in some of these stories uh, of the Bible and the whole biblical account, actually, that will help us to manage ourselves through this and especially manage our fear in the face of this coronavirus. So what might those stories be? I, don't, I know I don't have much time here, so I'm just going to be very brief here. I think you'd have to start with uh, the creation story of Genesis 1 because right there in that story, what we are told that uh, many people are not really aware of is that the world that God created in Genesis 1 is a world in which um, God had to put barriers and limit the chaos in order to bring about cosmos. And the world as we, uh, as Genesis 1 represents, is a world that's hanging in the balance between chaos and cosmos and it's a very delicate balance. It's a, it's a very powerful tension. And what keeps chaos at bay is God's promise, God's goodness, uh, God's word. But at any moment, if not for that, if not for God's promise and uh, God's uh, faithfulness to keep uh, cosmos, the chaos would break in. It's constantly wanting to break in. So uh, our world is such that um, chaos is there, and the chaos is not eliminated. And it won't be eliminated until we turn to the last pages of uh, the Revelation and we get to the new creation. That is when this chaos is totally eliminated. Mm -hmm. So where does the coronavirus fit into this story? I would say the coronavirus is one of these elements represented, uh, that represents a chaos. It's probably a, pers a personification of chaos. And um, the, uh, as you read the biblical story, you will see that God does allow sometimes the chaos to break through for his purposes. He did for sure in Genesis 8 with uh, the bringing of the flood. He does, uh, if you read Psalm 74, if you read Psalm 89, if you read Isaiah 51, he talks about how he brings these forces in to, to accomplish his purposes. But they are constantly and always under his control. Uh, they, and, uh, they finish their purposes and they, they, they go back to their barricaded uh, places. And... Um, and they will never, God has promised, never to allow the chaos to overrun the world like it did before. It will never do that. But will it creep in and will it, uh, will it cause some damage? Of course it will. Volcanoes and earthquakes and tsunamis, they all represent that kind of surd chaos, that surd evil that is out there. 
but um, they uh, they will never overrun and destroy cosmos because God has promised in the in the covenant with Noah and in other places that he as 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 long as his purposes continue he will never let the chaos overtake us and that means we do not have to be afraid of this coronavirus it will never overwhelm the earth kill everybody etc 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 it is on a leash god uh, knows about it it is pro- uh, it, I, I i believe it's a biological entity that uh, has been uh, is part of the creation and as a biological entity of course it needs a host to live but it is a biological entity it's a life form that that's under god's control so we can we can talk about uh, we can talk more about that but that's what i would say look trust god he um, he controls the whole cosmos he keeps all of these forces in balance and um, and he's he's guaranteed and promised us that we will have a, a, a an ordered world in which life can continue mm-hmm. I think it might be helpful for some of our listeners to um, just hear that in Genesis 1, if you take the first verse as a summary statement or a title, mm-hmm. as somebody like Bruce Wolke would argue, that that is a title for the whole thing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which means that when you get to Genesis 1, verse 2, that is the beginning of the creation account according to the first creation story. And what you have there is the formlessness and void, or in the Hebrew, it's the tohu vabohu, which is essentially onomatopoeia for chaos. And then you have the spirit of God. Well, you have darkness over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God hovering over the waters. And in ancient Near Eastern mythopoet, mythopoetic creation accounts, it would be the one thing you always have. And it would be personified as a sea monster, this chaotic sea monster. And there would be a battle between the hero God and the sea monster God. And the hero God, they'd have this titanic battle together. And the palace temple of the conquering god would be created out of the carcass of the sea monster but the interesting thing in the bat in the creation account of genesis is that there's no contest merely by his word god subdues the chaotic waters and as you were saying he bounds them and so part of this idea of uh, chaos is that it is restrained but still present and in revelation chapter 21 when the author says there will no longer be any sea this is a great hope, not because there won't be things like sailing or swimming or surfing, but because there will be no more chaos. And so, indeed, ultimately, we have nothing to fear. But other... But yeah, fear go, itself. Go so, ahead, Jens. Uh, as a Christian theologian, I would like to take that um, into the direction of Christ because I'm really worried about how the church these days, in reaction to COVID, uh, in the very name of being Christ-centered and Jesus-loving and all these kind of things, do not seem to take into account what uh, Ivan just started saying, namely that all these promises in God have become true in Christ. Right? So the covenant mm-hmm. promises have been fulfilled in Christ. So if we fear, what do we usually fear for? I think we do fear for the dissolution of our life, of our existence, ultimately, mm-hmm. in some sense, right? Which could be like that was chaos. What was chaos would unravel your existence, and I, I like to think that in the biblical account, sometimes when people encountered, particularly God, and they were afraid and their knees were knocking uh, against one another, is because they felt that they they were in the presence of the being that could dissolve their very existence, right? In some kind of sense. But whatever this is, so we fear, uh, we fear for our lives, which and uh, which why we react in certain ways. 
And so when I take that very, very seriously, I think ancient theologians took that a lot more seriously than we do now. When Christ says, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and I'm the resurrection, you have to take these literally. I, I don't think he made statements about some inner psychic state of being, but he made statements about reality. When he says, I'm life, he means that he is, if you want to go back to this, he is the force that, you know, um, rules over chaos. He is the one that holds life in his hands. He's the one that sustains all things. He's the word through whom everything has been created. He is the very stability of all things, who holds all things, who, uh, who controls all things, who will make all things work into, you know, the way of renewal and so on and so forth in the end. And so, if we actually believe that, then we don't fear, because in that ultimate existential sense, right? So, Amen. and that, that has, Christian, has given Christians always the strength to face uh, difficult and dangerous situations, knowing that their life is ultimately and their identity is hidden in Christ. They do not need to fear, because they live in Him forever, truly. This is not some psychological, inner spiritual state. This is a reality that we have, right, in union with him. So I'm, and because, because when we fear, that fear may be absolutely legitimate, and we may not know if in our lifetime perhaps uh, powers may rule that, that may well kill us, things may well overwhelm us, and so on and so forth. But we don't give up, we fight against them, and we stand up, and we think out of the promise fulfilled in Christ that we have life. Mm. And that's what should rule the church. And I could go on, I'll stop here, and we can talk about this longer for the application of it, uh, because then we have to judge our current present situation, but we have to judge it in this light, that we have life, mm -hmm. right, truly. And this is not just talking again, I'm saying this <coughs> one more time, not some inner spiritual state of being, we truly have life, existence so in Christ. Are you saying that sometimes... Um, when the Christian is fearing things of this world, it's because, in a sense, the gospel has not become sufficiently real to us, existentially. Yes. I'll give, me an ex give you an example. Uh, it's one of my favorites since this year, because I came across this text. So the early Christians, when there, were, there was a, a pandemic raging through Rome, uh, early Christians resigning there, when everybody ran for the hills and pushed their relatives into a ditch to die of the pandemic to save themselves. The Christians so lived out of that reality mm. that they would stay, that they would heal the sick, um, and face death. So and this is, of course, not a license to be irresponsible. Like you have to weigh this with all the societal situations and, and proportionate things. But the initial faith was that we have life, what the heck are we afraid of? Mm -hmm. And and wow. since every person is more important, you know, than my own well-being, but you can say that because you know that you, your life is held by Christ. So, mm -hmm. so I get infected, I die. Again, I'm not saying this is a license for recklessness, mm -hmm. but here the humanness overruled the fear of death. Mm -hmm. That's the Christian faith. Yeah. Yeah. Do we see it? That's what I'm wondering. Yes. So there's kind of a hierarchy of values there in, if for the Christian as well. Is we're, it's not a recipe for carelessness. We don't, um, we don't run into uh, dangerous situations just because we're not afraid. But um, we are willing to go into those situations 
when there's a higher calling and we're not afraid of death. Uh, if I can jump Please in do. there, Ed. Um, <coughs> I, think, I think both the comments of Ivan and of Ivienz are very, very helpful. Um, and they, they underline for me, at least, that um, regardless of the circumstances and regardless of our doubts and fears, which often do creep up, I think, um, we, we are to place our trust That's right. in the Lord. So do fears come up? Yes, they do come up. Did they come up for the early Christians that Jens is talking about? Yes, of course they did. Um, I just finished reading uh, this uh, novel by Sigurd Unstead, Kristen Lavron's daughter. Um, it ends with a situation of, of the plague. Uh, did fear come up for the people that, went, that lived through the plague in the 14th century in the novel? Absolutely. They were terrified often. But what you also see is various characters in the novel um, holding on to their faith and saying, no, <laughs> uh, we are ultimately, in terms of what's real, we're secure in Jesus Christ. <laughs> and therefore, I take on my tasks, namely to carry the dead, even if I get infected, mm -hmm. um, to uh, give the last rites to someone, no matter what the consequences may be for me personally. And it's that kind of courage, um, despite the fear, that, that I think has often been sadly lacking in the last couple of years. I, I think that's right on. <coughs> like, if you look, I'm just thinking about the Jesus calming the storm in Mark chapter 4. And the disciples, this furious squall comes up, you remember. And the disciples are in the boat. And Jesus happens to be asleep um, in the boat. And the disciples um, say, don't you care about us? We're about to drown. And they are terrified. And Jesus responds to them is, he says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And I looked up the Greek on that. Really, a, a, a fair translation of the word afraid there is actually, why are you so cowardly? Now, cowardice is different, is not the absence of fear. It's how you respond to the fear that's in front of you. And what Jesus wants us to do is to respond to frightening situations actually with courage. And the foundation for that courage is our faith in him. Mm -hmm. And part of the disciples' problem, Mark and Mark is clever here, part of the disciples' problem is the disciples are unaware of the reality of the one who is with them. So I think that Christians fall into patterns of fear. And that this is to say, responding to things that are scary in ways that are um, not helpful and not appropriate as a response for a Christian because we do not see the God who is with us. And Mark makes this explicit at the end when Jesus says essentially, knock it off wind, knock it off waves. This gets back to your theme of chaos, actually. Who is the one that silences the raging of the seas so and the stormy waters? It is him alone. And, they, and their final comment is, who is this? That even the wind and the waves of it, who is this? Read or understand, this is God himself who is laying in that boat and he's asleep. And interestingly, he takes the peace that is within him and he gives that peace to those who are around him. So if, if, if the biblical narrative is, is as clear as you're saying, Ed, and I think it is, um, then what is it, perhaps especially during the last two years, that has, <laughs> th that has made us so fearful and that instead of uh, displaying courage has, has often made us 
display a degree of cowardice? What what mm. what is it so socially or ecclesially? Um, what is it that that has made us react differently than people in the early church or people in the 14th century? What's going on? I, I'm just going to add to that, and I, that's a good question. We should, you know, I, I would love to see oh, what you guys this have is to critical answer. But question. I want to add to that one more thing, which is the disproportionality of the fear. So the the, ah. the, the example that I've called out is um, is that real. <laughs> it was an endemic that raged in Rome. Five thousand dead in the street a day. Death rate of thirty percent. We have nothing like this. We've never had anything like this with the current so-called pandemic. So it's not only condemning that we've reacted fearfully as Christians. It's doubly condemning that we have not uh, reacted truthfully to the actual threat. So exactly. I'm just going to throw that oh, in because totally right. for me, because if you if you think about that, it's <coughs> doubly condemning that we have allowed and not raised our voice. The church has not raised its voice, condemning. Um, They've done it after a while, but not initially, um, that old folks were left to, you know, I'm going to try to find a better word, but, you know, left to rot in their rooms. Um, Families separated. Elderly couldn't visit one another yet. It's terrible stuff. It is terrible. Um, Anyway, I'm just just stumped by it, as you are. I just want to throw this in, because if we'd actually taken care to look truthfully at the situation, we could have had a proportionate weighing of the risks, I, which I, we never did. I, I, Jens, I think this is really important. And one of the things I've noticed as a pastor in a church is I believe we're in the midst of an epistemological crisis. People don't know where to find the truth. And it is very difficult. And what I've seen in the church is that there is there is an information um, gap. Pe- people are getting their information from different sources and therefore are uncertain about what the truth is. And I think there is, they think that like there, some think this virus is very, very, very dangerous. And uh, that the most loving thing you could possibly do, certainly in the beginning, this was the rhetoric, is to stay away from other people. So as I think Bruce Heinmarsh put it in his book, Until We Have Faces, uh, his book, his, what do you call that, an extended essay, Till We Have Faces? Mm-hmm. Um, he said, you know, we were taught that the good Samaritan now actually in love walks on the other side of the road. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to stay away from the person uh, in the hospital bed or whatever. So, but th- but I do think that one of the things to underline is that there was an epistemology. We are in the midst of. A, I mean, look at the news coverage of this thing. It's a huge problem. So, how do people discover the truth? To in order to get that sense of proportionality, read CDC. Uh, look at the CDC. Look at BC CDC. I don't know. Well, I mean. We- Go keep for talking, it. But um, that's another, uh, that's another, I, I'm, I'm just stumped by the fact that you can actually find out the truth. It's not that hard. If you have internet, if you have uh, access to um, just even rudimentary ability to read medical papers that have been out for, I mean, we're in our beginning, our third year of this. You have to think about that. Mm-hmm. I could give uh, people uh, two, three months Especially those that actually I'm in charge who have a, who have um, you know staff who have a team of of uh, all kinds of advisors. I'm talking about our politicians and leaders, but after that time, there is no excuse for not actually having found out the truth, which we could use to gauge our our proportionate response to this. Yeah. And so the same goes for Christians and anybody. Why is it talking about an epistemological crisis that the material to know the truth is out there, but we're not accessing it? We're not so. 
It could be. I mean, so here, here's my, my, you know, my, my children call me like this 19th century dinosaur. And so here could be this problem of the social media, a lack of attention span. Like people are just not able or not willing to invest the time it takes to really focus on a thing until you've got it figured out, right? Mm. That could be it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it is, I don't know, but it's stunning <coughs> that we have more information ever before and people are simply unwilling or indifferent to finding out the truth. That, that latter point is, is the last point that Jens mentions, I think is very interesting. Un- unwilling and indifferent to access the truth. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about a, an epistemological crisis yeah. and perhaps in part at least, the crisis is caused by our relativism, by, by a sense of, mm. um, by the question of whether truth really matters or whether it's really accessible or, or, or if there is really something there that we can hold on to. Um, so people are indifferent because in part I suspect people aren't sure that there is some absolute that you know I, 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 I can hold on to. Um, and I think there's also practical issues, like very basic things. I mean, y- y- all of us here, you know, live in, in, in academic environments, but, but most people don't after all. <laughs> and, and people are busy <coughs> and, and live their lives in all sorts of ways and pick up something from the CBC or from, from CNN or whatever and take it as gospel truth, not, ri- not, not aware often, I think, that that journalists are in bed with politicians and 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 uh, <laughs> well i mean hans as an academic i can just extend my disappointment of the church to the academy i do not see that it's right. helped there's been more spine more willingness to figure out the truth and not simply to pursue sort of a main narrative without checking uh, you know contrary facts like where has been what we train our students to do which is you find out whether the story is right. You find the legitimate sources of authority. You find out whether the incongruities that you see, how, how, do, the resolve, how do we resolve them? What authorities do I go to? What counts as a legitimate authority among this mass of information? And so on and so forth, right? I mean, have you seen that? I have seen that very in very rare circumstances. The academy as a whole, I think, has failed in the response as much as the church, for me, anyway, as a whole. I think one of the, um, uh, getting back to uh, what you were saying, we have the information. Yeah, there's the internet that you can look these things up and so forth. And uh, so why aren't more people aware of this um, stuff? It's, I don't think it's because uh, they're not ha- they're not looking at the information, but the problem is, and I was just describing this to my students the other day, uh, you can have two people looking at the exact same uh, f- uh, facts, and one person will draw a totally different conclusion than the other person uh, looking at the same facts. So w- what accounts for that difference? I don't think it's the facts. It's the lenses by which we are looking at those facts. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that all of us look through, uh, look at life, look at reality through a set of glasses. You can call them whatever you want, worldview or whatever. That's how we look at it. So it's, we don't even see reality as it is. We see reality as it is interpreted through these lenses that uh, we have ground for ourselves. So where oh, that's the issue. Uh, do we have a biblical worldview? Do we have a set of biblical glasses by which to look at and analyze the world? Or are we, are, are we getting these glasses from the, the world around us, right? Because, uh, f- for example, here's uh, one of the ways in which I knew that I needed to wait when the vaccine came out. 
And I did it based on uh, my my understanding of the biblical story yep. and the understanding of the fall and what the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented, which was the um, the power of uh, humans to try and figure out what is right and wrong independently on their own. <clears throat> and uh, to try and uh, answer and solve their problems without recourse to uh, biblical revelation and dependence upon biblical revelation. And so when the vaccines came out, that said to me, well, this might be the solution, but uh, I'm going to wait and see before, uh, before I uh, stick it in myself or something like that. Because I know what humans are like and how they, uh, they think they can solve their own problems and so forth. So I'm just going to wait and see. And I guess I'm still in that, in that process. But it was that biblical story that enabled me to analyze what is going out, going out in reality, and I don't think our churches, our, our Christian uh, institutions, are enabling our students and our, uh, you know, the the layers to grind those sets of lenses by which they can look at reality. We don't have a biblical worldview, a Christian mind. So moving moving back to the concept of fear, then theologically and working on these lenses, let me throw up two things <clears throat> and have you guys respond to them. First of all, from Hebrews chapter two. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And then this line, notice verse 15, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's one. And then the other one in scripture is fear is actually portrayed as a net positive it is the pathway to wisdom. If your fear is properly placed, it is the bedrock to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So maybe we could respond to these two ideas. First, that is our most fundamental fear that's not appropriate, is a fear of death. It's understandable, to be sure, and only in light of the Christ event do I think we can overcome this fear in a proper sense. But then also that fear is good if it is the fear of the Lord. Right. Um, if I if I may, just uh, take a stab at that, in line with what with what Jens said about how Christ has uh, given us life, and this life is real, tangible life. Uh, so therefore, what are we afraid of? You mentioned the uh, Mark four story about the disciples in the boat, and you mentioned that the word that's used there uh, means um, more covetous or timidity, and and that's right. There are of the two f- words for fear, the uh, phobos, this word is uh, delos. And uh, it occurs very interestingly, uh, this, this word coveredly, it occurs in First Timothy 1 verse 7, where Paul tells young Timothy, uh, whose name actually means timid, uh, do not be timid, but God has not given us a spirit oh. of timidity, but of power. So we, we should not be giving in to that spirit. And what is interesting is when you go to the final vision in Revelation 21.8, I think it is, and you have the new world uh, arriving, and it describes all the good things, then it describes the things that are not going to be there. And the first thing it starts with is the cowardly, the timid. Mm. They, are not, they are not going to make it into the new heaven. So this oh. is serious stuff. This... If if you are timid and you are afraid, you have you you need to get rid of that, because um, it will mean you won't make it into the new heavens because you cannot enter with that. So um, 
that's well I'll, I'll leave it there well it's good and let's yeah. say a little bit more about that it is because um there's if you're cowardly you're lacking in trust in the one who can bring you through whatever fires to allude to daniel that you might be thrown into right daniel chapter three i'm sure they weren't looking forward to going into there they were probably duly afraid of being thrown into a furnace and yet they had courage and so were able to go in because they trusted the god in a sense who raises the dead and let's think about coronavirus in light of all of these plagues that we've been talking about, okay? The, sta the statistics are there that it is not at that level. Um, what are we fearing? What we are fearing is we, there's been a huge, um, what can you say, a, a, a massive amount of um, data that we've been given to cause us to be afraid. I think there has been a campaign, a, mm. um, a purposeful campaign by our uh, governments even, who, uh, as I understand it, have actually hired experts in how to scare people into uh, doing what they want them to do. And uh, so we are fighting this, and Christians should not be succumbing to this because we have the fear of God, which combats, mm. which should combat this worldly fear that, that they want us to have. So let's look at the numbers and see what are we afraid of, the coronavirus. Well, Christ is resurrected. He has, he has trampled over coronavirus. The coronavirus is his, uh, his, um, uh, his captive. He has taken it captive. Um, if I can, yeah, can just uh, hook into that comment of Ivan's. Uh, it's very, very helpful, I think, um, because it, it raises the question of how it is that these lenses of ours are, are being, being shaped, right? And, and I think what Ivan is saying, well, um, we're, we're deliberately made afraid, not in, in the sense of the fear of the Lord that you're, that you're mentioning, but in a different kind of fear. That's, that's quite inappropriate. Um, I just, I'm just reading this book here by Alex Berenson called, mm. called Pandemia. Mm. And um, I think it's in the fourth or fifth chapter or so. He talks about this so-called uh, Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, or SAGE, which is a, a um, British government advisory group um, and they published a paper uh, which is called Options for Increasing Adherence to Social Distancing Measures. And then they talk about the need for fear quite openly, quite deliberately. Uh, and they say, here's the perceived threat, and I'm quoting, right? A substantial number of people still do not feel sufficiently personally threatened. It could be that they are reassured by the low death rate in their demographic group. In other words, quite early on, in 2020 already, um, Fauci and others realized that this thing is not very threatening for people under 70. <laughs> you don't really need to worry. But people should, of course, worry <laughs> because um, we, need to, we need to get the fear up there in order to, um, to, to, to get control over, over societal mobility and all of these other things. So the, the statement goes on. The perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased among those who are complacent using hard-hitting emotional messaging. <laughs> you know, I'll stop the quotation there. Um, and it, but it reminds me of, uh, I was in Holland in, in November, and listening to the news, there was this, and I think he was a sociologist, I'm not sure anymore, but this guy quite openly said, people are not fearful enough, not afraid enough. What we need to do is, during the news hour, um, Every, every couple of minutes, we need to just show some hospital beds that, that of people coughing and being really in, in miserable situations. He was talking about it quite openly. Mm -hmm. uh, 
in, insisting people are not afraid enough and therefore they get together too much, they're socializing too much, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the fear factor is just being increased yeah. deliberately. So let me just add to that. Um, the same pa- Germany had a vi- the same kind of paper. Um, uh, was this British or was this American? British. Yeah, so British and Germany had a similar uh, kind of paper commissioned by a... Um, by a firm or something that you know would do these things, and they also said children don't have a real understanding of what a pandemic is and so on. So you need to tell the children if you don't follow the orders and if you don't mask up, if you don't do these things, you will kill your granny, okay. you will kill your parents. Yeah. That was a deliberate plant. You just have to it, think it, about that in order to terrible. create panic. Um, so well, apparently. The military has been using psychological tactics against Canadian citizens in order to heighten their fear, in order to control people. And there is a theme here that if you want to control people, get them afraid. Absolutely. Because fearful people will do anything that you want them to do if you have them in a sufficient state of fear. Yeah, so which brings us back to what we said earlier, because fear leads to misjudgment or blindness, right? Um, they always say love is blind. I think fear is a lot oh more yes. blind. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because you mm. fear here, what actually sets you free from fear. Mm-hmm. You fear here's truth and fear come together, right? You fear in the truthful. You you respect. You fear. Um, you you realize that this is really the node, the the center of existence. And if that center says to us, "Do not be afraid." I hold you, I have you, I love you, uh, you know. Um, and in Christ, I have actually shown all of humanity that I am willing to do everything I can to have communion with you. And that is why early Christians didn't run, right? And then this, this person, this, this God, dies on the cross, rises with a human body to rise to life. So we know, not psychologically, but truly and really, that our death will result in a resurrection, in real life. Not just kind of, you know, virtual reality, video game kind of reality where we kind of hover around us, but no, like as us. So you will continue. You will truly become a more glorious being in the end. It's interesting. I'm just thinking about the the body's physiological response to fear. So you're in a back alley. You're confronted by somebody that's very, very scary your body goes into a panic response, which is to say that your alert system goes on high, your ability to think is uh, curtailed, Mm -hmm. and you go into an automatic either fight or flight response syndrome. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to continue to think, even theologically, or feel theologically, when um, you have been put into a state of fear or panic, because it actually plays on your reptilian brain, just to think about it evolutionarily, right? So you you lose your ability momentarily to actually think. So what we're saying is we need to be able to pull back away from our fear in order to regain our cognitive faculties. So I'm it still... Is, uh, it is, it's fascinating to me, uh, just, I'll just mention this, then Hans, you can go, um, that for the early church... Uh, um, we just read Athanasius on the Incarnation. He says, you want to know, you pagans out there, you want to know, I know it's a derogatory word, but you know, he uses it. You want to know, you know what makes a Christian a Christian, what Christianity is all about? He said, look at us. We're not afraid of death. Mm-hmm. Th- that, you know, he spends a whole paragraph uh, on saying, look at us. We're not f- that's where the proof lies. Yeah. 
So our, our, our liability to fear, still thinking about, about, about why that is, right? Yes. Um, and why it is that we're so much more, 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 um, um, uh, liable to it than, than Christians in previous generations. And w- when I think of schools, um, situation in schools, anxiety is a huge issue in, in, in schools today. Um, anxiety obviously is closely related to fear. And, and, um, could there be something societally going on that makes us much more liable to to uh, collapsing and to to saying I, I can't handle things anymore? Um, so so right the elementary schools when you talk to any teacher, anxiety is a huge huge problem. Um, what's the reason for this? I have a guess. I think anxiety is tied to your identity. Um, I think kids are anxious in, in part because of their identity. I mean, they, they get mm-hmm. really anxious, um, like, is my, you know, is my friend group liking me? Is my, like, all these kind of things, right? Um, and that's why it is detrimental if at that age group particularly you massage in, um, you know, all kinds of messages that we now do which children at that age are not able to handle. You know, are you are you a boy? Are you a girl? Like, do you know? Um, I mean, all these kind of things right that they're not able to handle but we make them do it so i think because earlier christians or in general it is healthier if your identity is um rooted in something greater than yourself Mm. right so for christians our identity as you said somebody said earlier is hidden in christ i mean ultimately for me the the paradigm of that um is for me is boniface prison poem who am i when all the things that make us who we are are stripped from him, you know, his family connections, uh, his uh, freedoms, everything is stripped. He's in a prison cell. He's treated with some respect. But anyway, he says, in the end, he says, um, whoever I am, because he gets, he's conflicting, like, who am I then? Am I, am I this guy who the prison guard says and some others say that seems to be pretty confident in all this chaos and helps others? Or am I whom I know I am, this coward who just wants to curl up and just, you know, die because of all of this? I can't handle this. Who am <coughs> I? And then ultimately says, Lord, you know me. That's who I am. That's enough. But that's, I know that's a limit situation, right? All these other things count. And yet at the same time, that's the ultimate um, place where our identity should lie. And you can extend <coughs> it from Christianity to other things. It could be your community. It could be something others in different religions. But... If if it's your own self where everything comes down to and that needs to be preserved, of course you're going to be anxious. Yes, all the right. time. Yeah. And 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 our identities seem to shift much more easily. You're you're using the boy girl uh, situation, transgenderism, but of course there's this all sorts of yeah. of of um, identity shifts in young people's lives today with technology. You know, you, you constantly have to push like buttons. Do I, am I liked? Do I like? And that cons- is constantly shifting, right? So yeah. there's there's a sense of do I belong here? Do I belong there? Am I accepted here? Am I accepted there? How how is this going to work? So I I think a lot of this is rooted also in a conception of freedom. We have said for years now that freedom is to be without restraint. So we have freed ourselves from a belief in the transcendent. 
We have freed ourselves from belief in God. We have freed ourselves from traditional conservative values. We have freed ourselves from a Judeo-Christian worldview, at least in principle, although I think our society is still laying on that bedrock. We freed ourselves from all these things. And what have we done to the individual? We said, you're completely free now to construct and create your own identity. What does that sort of freedom do to the human psyche? tell you what it does it's utterly and completely crippling for young people because now i'm responsible for how loved and lovable i am and the capacity the possibility for failure or not making the grade it's constantly um they're constantly reminded of this when they go to a facebook page or an instagram and they see that oh i'm supposed to have that body type oh this person's liked more than i am and so we're building false or very fragile identities for ourselves, and I think suffering profound existential anxiety as a result, which is the fear of the loss of the self in a Kierkegaardian sense, right? Kierkegaardian sense. It's, I'm, I, I fear death, but I also feel my evaporation, my meaninglessness, my insignificance as a human being. So I think a lot of our fear is coming out of that, and that's redoubled when you think about the loss of community, the loss of the community in the home, the breakdown of the nuclear family is huge, so I don't know who I am. Previously, I was, you know, I, I'm very, who I am is I'm the son of Chuck and Mark Gerber, you know, I'm part of this village or this community or whatever, but today that's, we're more transient and we don't have those uh, kind of identity markers um, that are stable across time. I think you could probably <coughs> map the, uh, or graph the rise in anxiety on a societal scale with the decline of <coughs> uh, Christianity in, in uh, society. I think the two are, are um, proportional in that way, mm -hmm. inversely proportional. And as we lose our Christian uh, and, and drift farther away from our Christian uh, anchor points, you can expect people to become more and more anxious. Because it's right, it's only in God that we get our true identity because he made us. And that is, um, that is where we learn who we really are. I am uh, a creation of God, loved by God, <coughs> saved by him, uh, adopted into his family. Um, I, have, um, I have been given a seat at his table and all, and all of these things and his protection and his care and he sent his only son to die for me. I mean, if you really understood those things, your identity is going to be extremely healthy. So, so Ivan, to, to, to strengthen that, that identity, that sense of identity and, mm -hmm. and to overcome the kind of fear and anxiety that plagues us, regardless of whether there's a pandemic or not, um, what, what we really need to do is strengthen our, our ecclesial communities. Yes. Right? What, what we totally. need is, is communities of faith, Christian communities of faith that are Christ-centered, that are catechetically powerful, um, mm. that are communally oriented in terms of, 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 of shared living and, and all of these mm. things. Mm. Totally. Um, but unfortunately, as, uh, as we look at it and as Jens has pointed out, the churches, uh, so many of them have um, caved and they have given up that responsibility. And talking about catechetically, catechetically powerful, uh, how many churches are really doing any sort of serious catechism of their congregants? G.K. Chesterton, just picking up on this idea of fear and community. G.K. Chesterton once said, 
when I am one, I am less than one. But if I am two, I can be 10,000 strong. That's great. Isn't yeah, that wonderful? Yes. yes. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I, I want to throw in another um, uh, topic or, or add to this, which is, so in some ways we've just said that in Christ, freedom is demonstrated to be not freedom uh, of choice or something like that, but freedom for the other, right, in some sense, like to serve the other, which, which he demonstrated to the ultimate degree. Um, true friendship is laying down one's life for another. Yes. Um, so Christians seem to have understood that in some sense, but they don't couple it with these other things that we've talked about, you know, um, of truth and proportionate fear. Because mm. I don't know about you, but I, I go to a church that has, I find a strong community or, or tries to foster strongly community. Um, and they would tell you, well, um, yes, Christ gives you freedom, but you don't have the right you know, not to wear a mask in church or something like that because out of neighborly love, or get vaccinated for that matter, because you do that out of love for your neighbor, for crying out loud. And isn't it curious that the politicians have taken up that phrase so quickly um, and, and bantered all over the place, you know? But particularly Christian leaders have used that. So, I mean, what do we do with that? Because, so my problem is, I think it all goes back to what I opened up with in the way. If you, if Jesus is truth, the way, and life, these have to be taken together. So, so if Christ is the truth in the way that Colossians has it, right? So he is the truth of all reality. Like all reality hangs together in him. And you cannot separate some internal piety of believing in Christ the Savior from the truth of creation, the truth of political historical circumstances, all these things that need to hang together in how you make your judgment. So I can, I can you know, be deeply Christ-driven in my, in my love, but if I don't take into account reality in a broader sense, I could be very deeply misled, distortively misled, pathologically misled, in, in fact. Mm. I think some of this is happening where the best of Christian uh, sentiments, like charity is pursued in an untruthful manner, hmm. right? Because the statistics tell us, like if you just, as we said earlier, you care to look, we don't have a deadly pandemic, we have a survival rate of over 99.8 whatever percent, uh, we have a death rate in all over Canada, I don't think that's infection fatality, I think it's a death rate 0.08%. Like these are, we would have never done anything like this before with any other disease. So here we are telling you, well, you have your freedom, but for the sake of your neighbor, get vaccinated. And I could talk about the vaccines also. but yeah. So truth, truth needs to matter. And we seem to completely push that aside. It's all pious sentiment. Yeah, I, I know that with reference to the question of truth, what some of my friends, because I've been having discussion with some of my friends who do not think in the same way that I do, again, they will say, well, I'm not reading what you're reading. And I have found that just personally very difficult, because, f frankly, because it's not an area of my expertise to get into all the science. I quickly find myself um, in over my head. And uh, I think that's where a lot of Christians I've seen in the church are struggling. It's just like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to make heads or tails of this. But going back to this question of fear for a second, I think another theme would be fear and attachments. Um, and I remember Peter Lightheart, I think it was, is that possible, Peter Lightheart, early on in this pandemic said that um, this is going to be an apocalypse. And I think one of the, th um, in terms of an unveiling. Yeah, it's Peter Lightheart, yeah. Yeah, Lightheart. And, and a revelation. Mm -hmm. What is it, what is COVID-19 <coughs> revealing 
in relationship to our fears and our attachments. I think it is showing that we are attached to some things we don't want to lose. In other words, we're afraid of losing our standard of living. We're afraid of losing our reputations. And some, I, I was talking to one person who was putting themselves on the line and they said, I went to take communion because they had written something and they knew that it was going to cause them a loss of face with some, right? Mm-hmm. And they said, Lord, I surrender my reputation to you. And I think some of us care far too much about our own reputations. It's not only our own lives that I don't want to lose my standard of living. I don't want to lose actually my life itself, but I don't want to lose my reputation. And I think one of the areas of reflection that Christians need to go deep down on is what am I afraid of losing? And the thing we ought to be afraid most of all of losing is what? That's a, that's a great comment. I think Ed. um, the fear is not just fear of, of, of our health and fear of, 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 of death and all, all of these things, although they, they are there too. Um, but there's, there's fear of reputation, as you're saying. There's fear of, of losing our, fa- our, of our, our, our face. We don't, we don't want to speak up for things for, for, for fear that will look silly in the, in, in the face uh, when, we, when we talk with other people. Um, and so we hide, we hide ourselves. Even if we may think that the other person or the other, uh, has a point, we're going to keep quiet because it, mm. it, it would look too silly to speak out. Um, uh, I know it's a temptation for me, me and I think it's a temptation for a lot of people. Um, it's an unhealthy fear. It's the kind of fear you know, that I even spoke, uh, spoke about, I think, at the beginning. Um, and, and, and a fear that... that, that is entirely, entirely misplaced because we ought to give ourselves to the other. And if truth really animates us, um, then, then we ought to speak for the sake of the other. Another, another sub-theme here is the fear of losing family and friends. And um, I was talking to a family member recently, and they said, um, I don't, I don't want to pursue the truth because um, I want us to be together. And oh. if this will divide us, and this is dividing right. families, and I, I have people at my church, and they say, my family is completely shattered by this. Mm. Some were willing to get together for Christmas. Others weren't willing to get. And that seems to me to be quite a legitimate kind of fear. But at the end of the day, you know, you start, you start hearing some words of Jesus in a new light, don't you? Mm. Um, I have come to bring a sword. And if uh, the, the father and the mother and the sister in relationship to me. Mm. And there does seem to me that Christians have to have a love for the truth. But um, truth divides, <coughs> and it has always, and it always will. These are difficult questions, I think. <coughs> they are. Um, I, think I think it's crucially important that we speak from the truth. Um, we ought to do so, as St. As, as Paul says, we ought to speak it in love. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The question of prudence uh, does come into play, I think. So a, a pastor or, or a priest um, ha- has as his first duty the unity of the church, I think. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm very sympathetic to church leaders struggling with the question of how do I keep this church together? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a, that's a very legitimate concern and a very difficult issue. Um, and... It seems to me that, that it comes down to the point of 
um, where where a pastor or a priest um, is is willing ultimately um, to deny the truth, for example, by means of uh, vaccine mandates or something like that, imposing that upon his church, dividing the church, the unity of the church, um, or if a priest or, or, or a pastor is willing to say uh, untruths to the congregation, mm-hmm. um, I, I think at that point, such a, such a church leader is 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 dividing. Um, but I think it's always a prudential judgment yeah. uh, how much and to what extent and in what manner uh, one speaks the truth. Um, now, <laughs> having said that, <laughs> um, often I think in today's situation, these kinds of prudential judgments aren't what th- aren't what it is about. It's about not losing face, mm-hmm. um, and it's about keeping the peace at all cost. Uh, but I do think there's there's difficult issues often involved. We were talking yesterday, uh, getting back to the fear, what do we fear? I do think, yes, that uh, a lot of us do fear death. And uh, even though we say, you know, we believe Christ has conquered death and we're going to to see him again and so forth, uh, we really don't believe that. We we really are afraid. And it's not that that's that's necessarily bad, but it it might morph into something like this. And I, I was talking with some friends yesterday and I said, I wonder what would happen... If um, you said to Christians, I've got a pill that uh, you can take and you will live interminably uh, and uh, you can continue on in this life or you cannot take the pill and uh, live your life, you will die, but you'll be resurrected and you'll get to be with the Lord forever and ever and ever. I wonder how many might say, you know, I'll take the pill. Whoa! As uh, as opposed to no, I want to live whatever years God has given me because at the end of it, I want to be in His presence. <laughs> <No>. That's great. <laughs> that's yeah. that's great. Thank you. And 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 you're raising the issue of otherworldliness in relationship mm. to our yes. fear, right? Um, we need a healthy dose of otherworldliness. Yes. Recover it. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why we're so afraid today is because we're so at home today. Oh, um, we're, we're, we're so we're, we're we're so happy with all yeah. of the all of the material yeah. goods that we've gained, um, yeah. and we've made this worldly goods ultimate rather than recognizing them to be penultimate. Um, but if our hope is in heaven, That's if right. our hope is with the Lord, then ultimately these things are subordinate. Absolutely. Mm. It's attachment, right? It's it's we yeah. attach, and our, and our identity becomes uh, uh, connected with these things that we have, and it's very difficult to detach ourselves from them and live in the world in a way that um, you know is authentic. And uh, this is God's world, and we have work to do, and it's loved by Him, and all of that. But also with a with a with a sense of detachment, and knowing that it is not from these things that my identity and my sense of security comes from. You know, the, uh, the, the, the basic definition of a God is uh, anything that gives you security and significance. Two of the, the big needs of humans, right? We are always looking for security. We, li- we know we live in a very dangerous world, and so we're looking for that which will keep us yes. safe. And we're also, you know, there are seven somewhat billion of us. So what makes me different from everybody else? Uh, we are looking for that significance, that thing that will um, give me some sort of significance. And whatever does that for you, that will be your God, and that will that will uh, that is what you will go after, and that that's what you will sell yourself to. 
And uh, in the Bible, God says, that's me. You know, I will give you your security and significance, and you don't have to seek it and try to obtain it from these other things. But um, do we believe that? So, so I wonder then uh, if the root problem isn't that we no longer, in the church or otherwise, live out of a decision what the fundamental realities are. So fundamentally, if metaphysical question, yeah. right? So um, again, I'm going back to Bonhoeffer, uh, who wrote this uh, book on ethics, or fragments actually of different pieces. But but he starts out by saying that ethics really starts fundamentally with the decision of what reality is like. And for the Christian, he says there's one there's one reality in Christ, right? This Christ yeah. is the ultimate reality. So according to the to- the pertain to the topics we've talked about. There are two things that would be the ultimate reality. One is you don't need to fear death because you have life in Christ. And the other is God became human in Christ so that there's one new humanity. So the oneness mm. of the Christian body is one of these fundamental realities. And the third, I might add, which is connected to the two, is that the church operates out of those fundamental realities. So have we as church leaders, um, as churches, as the Christian people of God, done a good enough job to train ourselves to live out of those fundamental realities. Because if we had, we would, like early Christians, uh, in, in, the, in the face of the truth, for instance, that we have laid out, you know, that pandemic isn't that difficult, uh, th- that deadly and all these kind of things, and what measures actually do work and do not work. There's a lot of information out there, and I, and I wouldn't say that it's all... Um, well, you have so much information, I can't have my mind. I think you can make up your mind. I think there's enough, for instance, on the the use of lockdowns as ineffective. There's lots of stuff on there. We would say definitely the balance goes to <coughs> non-effective. Why are we doing this? But what I'm thinking is, earlier Christians would have told the state to take a hike. We live out of a different reality. Mm-hmm. We're not beholden to state powers. Just because the state makes rules, we have to adjudicate as Christians whether these rules are commensurate with these fundamental realities that determine our existence. Otherwise, mm. we wouldn't be Christians. We wouldn't live out of a Christ reality, right? And I don't think we're doing that. I, I think that's where we need to, as Hans said, we need to draw lines. Like for for the church, for any pastor, if the government says, especially if it says on the basis of this lie uh, that you need to have vaccination passports for attendance, therefore dividing the people of God into two, splitting them effectively, mm. That needs to be a red line, mm-hmm. and that needs to be, you know, because it's it's con- contravenes a fundamental reality that defines not just who we are subjectively, but in the reality who is Christ, whom we believe, right? That's absolutely so. Maybe mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that's an issue. So, in wrapping this up, I think it's about time to wrap it up. But I would invite each of you to, if you have a word of encouragement to the people who are listening. Uh, with reference to what's going on in the world right now, let's say that many people are afraid, and they are, because we are living in scary times. It's true. And there may be even bigger things going on. We hear about things like a Great Reset, which is not a conspiracy theory. It's real. It's actually going on. They want to (coughs) rejig the way this world is uh, operating. So do you have a word of encouragement for those who are fearful? Well, I would say, um, was it uh, Rousseau who said, <coughs> I would rather live free with danger than uh, have safety in slavery. <coughs> and um, th- 
that's a that's an interesting sentiment. But we have the best. Of, we have the reality of that. I don't know what Rousseau meant by that, but we have the reality of that because Christ has absolutely offered us both uh, freedom and security in Him. We have it. We have both in Christ. And um, as Jens has said, as Hans has said, we trust in the one who has conquered death. And uh, in, the, in the first chapter of Revelation, Christ <coughs> says to John, soon, uh, at whose appearance John falls at his feet as though dead, and the first thing Christ does is put his hand on his, on his shoulder and says, do not fear. And he says, look at me, I was dead and I'm alive. Mm. Look, you know, that didn't keep me down. I'm, I'm back. And he said, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Coronavirus does not have the keys to your demise. It cannot take you without Christ's permission. Christ has the keys to death. And, um, and God has allotted each person <coughs> their years. And um, I, I trust that. This does not mean I take foolish chances. But uh, who was it? Was it Matthew Henry or George Whitfield who said, you are immortal until your work is done? And uh, in that sense, you can trust and you can go forth knowing that you are Christ and he is yours and go and do good in the world in this time and show what Christianity really is. Take care of these people. Wonderful. Uh, two comments maybe. One is an empirical one. Um, I mean, as we're recording this podcast, uh, hundreds of thousands of truckers are, are in, in Ottawa. And yes, there may be a great reset attempt. There is. I'm quite in agreement with you on that. There definitely is an attempt to do that. Mm. Um, but increasingly, there's pushback. And we witness that uh, even in our peace-loving country of Canada. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm greatly encouraged by what the truckers are doing. They're not a fringe minority. And uh, they, they are... They are uh, a, a hopefully unacceptable <laughs> growing views. group. They're, they're unacceptable maybe to some, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but I, I, take great courage, I take great encouragement from that because mm -hmm. uh, these truckers have shown courage, uh, fearlessness uh, in the face of, of uh, a media onslaught, a governmental onslaught. And I think we should be very grateful for, for, the, um, uh, for the leadership that they are showing to us. Um, and I think they're a sign that people are waking up, perhaps. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful, empirically speaking, and um, or optimistic, empirically mm -hmm. speaking, somewhat optimistic. Um, and theologically, I'm, I'm definitely hopeful. Yes. And, and just, mm -hmm. I mean, we could go through the entire scriptures uh, from, from Genesis to Revelation, but just, um, let's take Psalm 2. Mm -hmm. God sits in the heavens <coughs> and he laughs. He laughs at what the powers Amen. are doing. Um, they're not powerful. Our, our God is a transcendent God, and he has shown his transcendence in, in, in taking on human flesh, becoming imminent among us. Um, there's no need to, to, to be afraid. God's great reset uh, far outdoes anything <laughs> that the a WHO Amen. will do. Wonderful. Yeah, so... Um not to repeat what's been said, but maybe add on to it. Um, the apocalyptic element of this, this is really fascinating. So this week I, I read a book by a Eastern Orthodox thinker, um, uh, Nikolai Berdyaev, from 1934, mm. 1934, where he talked about all of these things. It's, it's uncanny how prescient that was. 
What's the um, title of the book? The uh, Fate of Man in the Modern World. Mm. And he said, he talked about apocalypses, so that he's the First World War, <coughs> like this corona fear, is, is an apocalypse, an unveiling of what we're really like. Mm. It, 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 it pulls away the veil that's covered our weak ideals, our weak need kind of, you know, lip service attempts at human dignity at all these kind of things. And what is hopeful for me is that the corona can be, or this, this, this artificially hyped up pandemic uh, actually reveals a number of things. And one of them is this, uh, or let me just, for the sake of time, these are all things that the church ought to fight against. Yes. And that, that the renewal of which, human dignity, the value of the person, are all things that Christianity brought into the world through a long development. Um, the kind of thing, you know, the charter rights that we have of freedom, of, of, of bodily autonomy, uh, many of the rights that are being violated right now, these are all, let me just be um, a bit polemic here, these are all Christian inventions, the mm-hmm. Christian values that have been brought into the world. And the church should fight for them in the name of Christ. Um, and I think only in some ways because the church realized where the power and strength come from that originally gave these is the church. I would very much encourage the church to pick up, take up the fight. Mm. Um, and you can do it with the kind of confidence and self-abandon that comes precisely from the fact that Christ is our life. We do not have to fear. But God became a human being in Christ to show us true humanity and community, you know, and sociality, in um, love for one another, and all these kind of things. And the changes we see right now, um, what governments are doing, and this is also connected to the Great Reset, there's a lot of stuff going on that diminishes the very kind of human things that we prize and cherish. In part th- through technology, part through surveillance technology, there's this whole, I'm part of the reset, right, is, is a, a QR code, mm-hmm. um, a universal ID that Europe has been dreaming about for a decade, um, that is now being ushered in, in many places. Um, but all these things will reduce you to a data set. This is just one issue, where our, our fundamentally robust humanity of fleshiness, proximity, sociality, community, is, is destroyed, is being mm. destroyed. So the church, I think, should be hopeful and should fight against this dehumanizing. And Bernd Jaev, 1934, saw these dehumanizing tendencies um, and I think this is another unveiling, and we should maybe take it in that hopeful sense. Amen. That's wonderful. I think the encouragement I have finally for those who are listening and for those of us here is to say, you know, there was, um, I'm not sure, was it Trooper? Or we're here for a good time, not a long time, so have good time. The sun can't shine every day. I think the Christian maxim is we're here for a meaningful time and not a long time. And I would underline that we are really not here for a long time. Our life, as Isaiah says, is like the grass which rises on one day and tomorrow it's gone. Let us live a meaningful life pursuing the things of God that have been revealed to us in Scripture, as Jens was just saying, and to remember what God says in Joshua. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. So though the storms may come up in the boat, remember who is with us in the boat. Amen. Thanks all for being here. Thanks for your contributions. And uh, bless all of those of you who are listening. The Lord be with you.